We can't just be great marketers and corporate leaders. We have to be better citizens as well. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another edition of Predicting the Turn. Today, I'm joined with one of the greatest minds that we've had in the world of corporate digital, Shiv Singh. Shiv is a former executive at both Visa and PepsiCo. He's the co-author of the book, Savvy, Navigating Fakeness, and he's the founder of Savvy Matters. Shiv, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Dave. Hey, it's always great to chat with you. So I always love to uh, start with somebody's journey. You and I first met when you were on the agency side, leading social media for a company called Razorfish. And since then, you've gone on to be an early leader in PepsiCo's digital team. And most most recently, you were at Visa, where you led digital transformation and then innovation. What took you on that path from going agency to consumer packaged goods, and then ultimately to fintech? Yes. When I think about my career and I think back on it, I really think about it in terms of three distinct chapters, or maybe four chapters. The first was at Fish when we met, and that was all about learning across industries and really trying to be on the bleeding edge of digital. And the bleeding edge of digital at the time quickly ended up being social media and social media marketing, which is why I wrote that book, Social Media Marketing for Dummies, did a lot of consulting with Fortune 500 brands around social media. However, after a while, I realized that in some respects, I was, uh, I was missing a lot because I would know the advertising and the creative and the media and the pl- media planning and buying side of marketing, but I wouldn't know anything further upstream or further downstream. And around that time, PepsiCo came knocking. I was recruited by a recruiter to join PepsiCo to lead digital across paid-owned and social media for their beverages business. And it was just a wonderful growth opportunity because all of a sudden, I was able to think in marketing, think about marketing in multi-year cycles and think as broad and expansively as Super Bowl advertising to grassroots brands that had very little budgets like uh, Lipton Ice Tea. You know, it spanned the spectrum from Pepsi to Lipton Ice Tea and other brands. So that served as a great growing, maturing experience in my second chapter. In my third chapter, when I joined Visa and moved to the West Coast, I was firstly moving to be in Silicon Valley, which had always been a childhood dream because for anyone who's tied to digital, you know, Silicon Valley has a special place in our hearts, as I'm sure it does for you as well. And I joined Visa for two reasons. The first is I was given an opportunity to work with the CMO in my first assignment to define and launch the new brand positioning, the visa everywhere you want to be brand positioning. And as someone who had grown up in digital, that was an incredible opportunity to have. The second reason why I joined and uh, why I feel I had a wonderful learning time at Visa and, and got to do a lot of fun, amazing things is because Visa as an entire business was going digital, payments were going digital, finance was becoming fintech. And to be a part of that transformation, which 
while at Pepsi, I got to do a lot of interesting things, you know, that, that industry was not going digital. It would always be a CPG. And when I was on the consulting side, I would just see a piece of it. Here at Visa, I had an opportunity to be a part of a journey where the entire business was transforming. So that served as, as, as a very exciting impetus. And I got to lead innovation, go to market efforts, digital marketing, launch a brand positioning, create a big startup program, all of that. And then my fourth chapter, which I'm in at the moment, is where I co-authored this book, Savvy, with my wife, and I launched Savvy Matters, and I'm advising companies around it. Uh, that's a great journey. So let's spend some time on that, uh, that fourth part of the journey. So as you mentioned, you wrote your second book, Savvy, Navigating Fake Companies, Fake Leaders, and Fake News. What was the inspiration to uh, pick up the pen, co-author a book with your wife? And, you know, what did you really find that surprised you this second time around writing a book? Dave, in in many respects, you know, co-authoring a book with your wife can be a high-risk, high-reward strategy. It's like investing in a seed startup. And everyone actually wondered whether our marriage would survive it. But the good news, it has. Um, I love it. Yeah. And the reason for that, and this goes to your question of what was the inspiration, it really started one evening last spring. My wife and I were having an after-dinner glass of wine and our kids had just gone to bed and we were talking about them. And it dawned on us that the world that our generation was leaving our children or the next generation was at significant risk of being worse off than the world we had inherited ourselves. And we found that to be a frightening, worrying, and humbling thought. And out of that discovery or insight came the book. So in what we believe through the course and what we express through the course of the book is that while there have been incredible technological advances, you know, across science, transportation, space discovery, technology, you name it, there have also been a massive trade-offs. And in a sense, there's been a, a bit of moral corruption or moral decay in society. Unfortunately, social media has played a big role in that, in the way misinformation spreads across social media, the way the social media platforms get weaponized by bad actors. And every time there's a tragedy somewhere in the world, we see that happening. Or every time there's a major election. We see another example of it. And for someone who, you know, had spent literally two decades promoting and evangelizing everything around social media and social media marketing, while I was on the consultancy side through my book at Pepsi and Visa, it was a very humbling discovery for me to discover that there's also a dark side to it. And it's important that we inform and educate and get savvy about this era so that we prevent the moral decay that's creeping into the world around us so that in turn we leave the world a better place for our children. So that was the inspiration. That's how it built on everything I'd done early in my career. And my co-author, my wife, Dr. Rohini Lutra, she's a clinical psychologist. So the book is part business, part psychology. Gotcha. And so you talked a little bit about social media and the inspiration there. And, you know, when we hear discussions about this topic, people are usually really quick to blame 
the technology companies. What should Facebook and Google and Twitter be doing? But the accountability lies with us as marketers, you know, to your point, the ones of us that have been evangelizing. So how do we need to change in that regard? Yes, that's that's a really good question. Firstly, in, in our book, our point of view is that just as software has glitches or code has glitches, so too do human beings. We have glitches and we have to recognize them and overcome them. We fall prey to all the fakeness in companies, among leaders and even in the media because of those human glitches. And we unpack them, show what they mean, show how to overcome them. That's what it means to be savvy. Now, when it comes to marketers specifically, and and this is an opinion of one, but I just have to think back to, you know, all the years I've spent in marketing, the hundreds and millions of dollars that I've steered to the social media platforms and to the ad tech platforms as well. And whenever I'd steer those hundreds and millions of dollars, and, and it really adds up to quite a lot over the years, not once did I ask them how they were protecting their platforms from misuse by bad actors, you know, by those, whether it's those terrorists or people trying to disrupt elections or people who are bullying others or anything of that sort. Nor did I ever ask, what are you doing to protect the data of our consumers? You know, we as marketers are supposed to be advocates of the customer and the voice of the customer and have their best interest in mind. Tragically, not once did I ask a question about data protection. So when you ask, do marketers carry responsibility? I think it's easy to pin blame on the social media platforms. I think they were naive and maybe a a bit too simplistic in how they thought about their platforms and how well they could work and what could happen on them. But we too absolutely carry a responsibility that I think we're just barely starting to come to terms with. And I think it's a, it should be a big learning and growth experience for every marketer out there that it's good to be a technology optimist and a technology evangelist, but we also have to recognize that the more power the technology has, the more easily it can be weaponized as well. So if you dig into that, you know, that means us as marketers, but you know, more importantly, probably as business executives, we have to be continuously evolving to keep pace with these changes. So in our own careers, how can we stay savvy and ahead of these changes? So, Dave, I, I don't know if this was intentional, but I have to plug my book in this moment. The way you stay savvy is by buying the book. Um, okay, now I've got that Nothing out of the wrong way. With that Okay. (laughs) So there there are a few things that we should do and think about. So in all seriousness, we talk a lot about what it takes to build and maintain trust in our book, because we live in this post-trust era and the language of trust is changing. What we believe is exceptionally important to do is that in any relationship with the customer, with a business partner, within your organization, whatever it may be, It is very important to think about the longer term downstream implications of any action you take. 
And that is a place where I think we all have fallen short as marketers, as business leaders, as corporations. What I mean by that is to bring it back to that media spend example is when we're partnering with a Facebook or a Twitter or a Google or whoever it may be, and we're spending media on their platforms, it is on us to also think about as their platform grows, what will be the downstream society impact? It isn't just about what is the immediate return that we're getting for our customer in you know, the next month or the next quarter. We have to think beyond that as well. And we have to think not just about the customer in isolation as one person who we are trying to convince to take some kind of action or purchase, but also the customer as belonging to a broader set of people, a community, a society, as a parent, as a citizen, and how what our dollars may do to them in the long run. And I'd say that's the big shift for all of us. We can't just be great marketers and corporate leaders. We have to be better citizens as well. At Predicting the Turn, we talk a lot about growth challenges facing business leaders today. And as we talk about growth, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Chinatown Bureau. Chinatown Bureau is a consumer experience firm solely focused on driving brand growth. They move brands beyond advertising towards a new brand growth playbook. They do this by building the strategies and technology tools that make each customer relationship as valuable as possible streamlining operations, and creating new revenue opportunities. Their clients are Fortune 500s and high-growth startups alike, and their engagements range from strategy development through full implementation of a new consumer experience. If you're experiencing slow brand growth and looking for a better solution beyond just advertising, visit ChinatownBureau.com to schedule a call today. When you think about this evolution, are there any whether it's companies or brands or even business leaders that really exemplify the change that we all need to take place in this world of savvy? So I'll I'll give you a few different examples. So firstly, I know it's, it's sort of more in fashion to slam Facebook and Twitter every chance a person gets. But I do believe that they're trying their best to change the platform and strengthen it to fight the misinformation that spreads both on Facebook and Twitter and even with YouTube. One can debate that they may not be doing enough and not fast enough and not be as transparent as they could be. But I do appreciate and respect those efforts of change and the willingness to engage with whether it's uh, regulators or academics or privacy experts. So that's one example. A second example is I am fascinated by some of these direct-to-consumer companies who are really trying to bring purpose and meaning and sort of more citizen sensitivity into everything that they do because they have that direct relationship with their consumers and they just know and understand them better. In that category, probably my favorite example is uh, Brandless from the way they talk about ingredients to how they put less emphasis on the brand and a bit more emphasis on the product quality itself and and how they communicate about their business and 
and their, their values as well. So those are two, I'd say, Brandless is something, is a company that's doing a lot of really good things. Facebook, Twitter, and Google, especially in the context of the YouTube platform, are, are trying to change up and reform, which is good to hear. Another example where I think it's a bit of a mixed bag is uh, with Amazon. And while Amazon does a lot of very good things, where I have a little bit of frustration is with the Amazon facial recognition software. And I'm not sure if you've seen that. No, I haven't. Have tell you, me more. familiar with that? Yeah, tell me more about that. So the so Amazon has this product offering. It's a facial recognition software that they've rolled out to law enforcement agencies across the country. They're selling it into businesses as well. And, you know, it works decently, but it has one fatal flaw, in my opinion. And that fatal flaw is it is an AI engine, of course, behind the recognition. And it is much better at recognizing white male faces then white female faces, then African-American men. And it recognizes African women, African-American women faces terribly. Now, that's not acceptable because remember, especially in the context of law enforcement and as it's sold into businesses, it has real human life implications when you have the facial recognition software not working effectively. Amazon's trying to fix it and tweak it and optimize the algorithm. And the reasons as to why it was built that way, it was all tied to, you know, biases within the coding team. The problem, though, is they should stop selling it. They should pull it off the market until that's fixed. But they're not doing that. So in this era of being savvy and as businesses and as marketers needing to carry responsibilities beyond just, you know, contributing to the quarterly earnings report, a company like Amazon, which can easily afford to take that product off the market, fix it properly, and then reintroduce it, I think it's embarrassing that they're not doing that and they really need to. So that's, you know, and there's a lot of good things about Amazon too, but that's an example of where a company needs to get beyond its fakeness, bring more integrity into a certain type of business decision-making and do the right thing. So that's really thought-provoking there because, you know, one of the things I've been talking about in the, the podcast as of late is this concept of continuous beta. And it's inspired by, you know, the technology world of beta and the need for continuous change. But there's a downside of beta when you're releasing something like that facial technology that you kind of do need it to be close to perfect because of the ramifications. So how can companies think about that not taking the concept of beta too far and realizing those ramifications? It really depends. So I'm a believer in the concept of beta by and large, but with one big caveat, it really depends on the type of product it is. You know, if if you're releasing a coffee mug that has a sensor on it that tells me how hot my coffee is and it's released in beta and the sensor sensor doesn't work very well, that's not a huge deal. However, if you're making promises around lab testing the way Theranos did, you cannot release and, and it has implications for 
people's health and for you know medication that they receive and even life and death questions you absolutely cannot launch something in beta and you should not and you never must so yes the concept of beta is interesting it applies and can apply to certain product categories where there are no risks or where there are enough disclaimers around saying this is in beta it may not work well use it at your own risk but if you don't do that it's usually problematic something else i would say though is let's say something r- launches in beta very often the strength of an organization both in how it approaches technology and digital is as much driven by how it responds to a situation versus what it launches and that's where i fall to amazon less so in the launch of the product they've learned their lesson it can be better but more in the response a different example is google just a couple of weeks ago announced an advisory board an artificial intelligence advisory board within a week of that launch of that announcement several hundred uh, google employees wrote a, i mean they 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 signed a document criticizing one of the members of that advisory board and saying that person should not be on it because she one didn't have the qualifications two had sort of some slightly shady pieces in the past or some points of views that were totally out of sync with google's philosophy and three because she just wasn't or he just wasn't a good fit now i bring this google example up because when that happens that's and and google then you know had the person removed and they're reconstituting the board in a different way that i think is actually a very good example google made a mistake its employees made sure their voices were heard and they had a different point of view and google responded to it now in the traditional marketing and communications world that would be considered a public relations screw up but i think it actually shows the strength of google both in terms of its willingness to listen and change quickly and rejig something two in its employees having the confidence and given the avenues to have a voice and three and this came through in in how they talked about the issue the appreciation that in this technology driven era that we're moving in it's very hard to make good decisions in isolation and even like with an ai ethics board ironically but when you allow for adaptability and change and that also ties in with a continuous beta mindset you can be fine as long as you change yourself as well those are stellar examples i love that So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about earlier in your career. You know, you worked with PepsiCo 10, you know, which was one of the first big corporate startup partnership programs. But then you also launched Visa's Everywhere initiative, which was a global innovation program that challenged startups to solve the payment challenges of tomorrow. So, you know, over the last decade from when you started with PepsiCo 10 through leading the Visa work, How have the best Fortune 500 companies evolved their approach to working with startups? Well, I'd say it's it's hard for me to talk about all Fortune 500 companies in general, but I can share how how I have evolved in in my thinking around it. When we launched uh, PepsiCo 10, and this was with Bonan, who was with me at Pepsi, and Seth Kaufman, and and a few others, it was all about 
infusing that start, you know, sensibility into, you know, a Fortune 100, 50, 60 billion dollar in revenue company and to introduce and educate the marketers and the communicators on the cool MarTech and startup tech that could actually help their brands. It was a great initiative, but what we saw at the same time was getting those matchmaking, those startups with the brands and the PepsiCo portfolio and developing strong use cases was hard and it took time. And in some cases it worked out and in some cases it did not work out. That program led to me starting with Andrea Harrison and a few others, the PepsiCo Digital Labs, which was all about co-locating with, I think it was at Reworks, and spending time in the startup community a lot more aggressively so that we weren't a fly-in partner with a big checkbook once a month or once a year or once a quarter, but instead were there with those startups, helping them and learning from them day in and day out. So we had a few desks in that location. By the time I got to Visa, my own thinking on all of this had evolved further. And I realized that times had changed. And what was most important, and this might have been tied to also, I was more senior in my career, I had a more serious senior role as well, is that I wanted to use the startup community to solve very specific business problems because I've become selfish. You know, Visa was in a space where fintech was exploding, where there were all kinds of challenger brands and entrants. And um, yes, you know, we felt we could solve a lot on our own, but we also knew that there were, there were a whole bunch of things that we did not know. So Visa's Everywhere Initiative, which I started literally in a conference room, whiteboarding with one other guy and then pleading for seed funding for the program, started with the idea that we're going to take our annual business objectives in a given market, like the US or Australia, expose them to the startup community, and have them come back to us with solutions or, or strategies on how their software or their platform or a partnership with them could help us solve these business problems. So it had a very strict business payment innovation lens on it. I started it in the US. There were a lot of people who scoffed at it and thought of it as a trivial pet project and didn't think it would do anything or be of any serious nature. But in the first year, a few interesting things happened. We firstly discovered two startups who were really helpful, not to Visa, but to the Visa clients, which are the major banks and merchants around the world. And so we were able to take it to them. That was hugely valuable. The second thing we discovered, because we did this in a Shark Tank competition style format, is that through this format, the winners were far more diverse. In the first year, it was by ethnicity than we had expected to the extent that TechCrunch wrote a story about it saying, is this a new model to find the best startups? Because you end up in more diverse startups and, and probably a bunch of founders who are beneath the radar of all the major VCs in the Valley. So that's how it started. We fast forward to a couple of years later, 
and we introduced her at South by Southwest. And I think you were there with me, a women founders version of the program to really attract women-led startups. And we first launched it in Australia and then in the US to help solve that year's business problems. And now the program, you know, has grown to 70 countries, four or 5,000 startups have participated in it. I think six or seven of the startups, winners or finalists, have been acquired by major banks or major merchants of Visa around the world. Many have done program from pilots to actual product integrations with Visa itself. And, and the program has just evolved into a massive, both, I would say, business driving program, as well as reputational driving as well. But Visa's Everywhere initiative launched and got to this point. And now, of course, there's another amazing team at Visa taking it to new heights, and it's going to be even better than it ever has been. But it got to this point because I was leveraging all my learnings from when I was working at Razorfish, you know, partnering and learning from Fortune 500 companies to that PepsiCo Digital Labs, to that PepsiCo 10 program, to then coming into Visa, seeing this as an entire industry and company that's going digital and realizing that programs like these need to be focused from the start on solving business problems. You were practicing your own kind of version of continuous beta there. So I love it. Totally. No question about it. So now for the last two years, you've served on the board of directors for United Rental, which is a $7 billion company traded in the New York Stock Exchange. Compared to your role at PepsiCo and then at Visa, how is it different guiding a company as a board member versus an executive that's working the business day to day? Yes, I I feel really fortunate and lucky to be serving on the board of United Rentals. A few things there, just to mention. So it's the largest equipment rental company in the world. Now it's actually already 9 billion in average annual revenue. And it has 20,000 employees, mostly in the US and every province in Canada. There are a few things. Firstly, it's a massively humbling experience. I always thought that being at the forefront of digital, I was one of the cool guys and knew what I was talking about. But the world beyond marketing and even beyond innovation is complex, it's complicated, it's hard, but it drives business forward. And that's always a wonderful, humbling experience for me when I'm in a board meeting. The second thing I would say is it forces me to become a much deeper much more reflective, and in some cases, even a much more cautious thinker than I normally am. And and that's a very healthy thing, because as a board member, I'm not an operator, I'm not making the decision, I'm, I'm not driving the business forward day to day, but I, of course, have massive influence on the direction of the company and the CEO and the leadership team. But I'm, I'm fundamentally not operating. I have to ask the right questions, help the leadership team in conjunction with the rest of the board to make good business decisions in the best interest of the shareholders. The third thing I would say is it's, it's been a fascinating experience from the standpoint that I'm 10 to 15 years younger than the next board member. Everyone on the management team is older than me. And that creates for great growth and great learning all around. I joke that 
I bring age diversity to the table. And that's sort of the most dramatic thing. I share all of this because as the world transforms to being more digitally centric and AI driven, I strongly believe that, you know, us being better citizens is going to be massively important. And a big influence on that insight was my work, you know, on the board of United Rentals with its 20,000 employees as it thinks about how it transitions into the AI era and how it's important to be creating cultures and corporate environments where you have really high employee engagement. It's the, in my view, that's the final frontier of developing a sustainable moat for your business. It's having high employee engagement and a talented workforce. So it's a great experience being on the board. I feel I'm privileged and lucky to be on it, especially at United Rentals, which is such a successful, well-managed company. And there's a lot of learning every day, both for me and all around as I'm a part of it. So we've covered a lot of ground talking about your journey on the corporate, you know, to writing you know, several books, doing the board director. Both of us are at a moment in our careers where instead of moving into a new corporate role, we've chosen this entrepreneurial path as you know, free agents, if you will, working independently with startups and big companies alike. Do you see that what we're doing as examples of a broader trend that is going to be in the direction of employment and where careers are really headed in the, the years to come? Well, I, I think we're already starting to see signs of that uh, more broadly in the workforce, just by virtue of the successes that companies like General Assembly, which encourage people to take control of training themselves, or we work where people set up their own offices, you know, the, the sharing economy and the do-it-yourself economy is, is sort of scaling up massively. What I think will really drive the tectonic shifts that are coming our way is over the next decade, all the AI tools and solutions in the world around us are going to get infinitely more powerful and they'll become more right and left brain. They'll start to mimic emotion more. They will start to have the seeds of general artificial intelligence. And when that happens, it'll just make more sense to have the AI technology to do more of the work. When that happens, the role of human beings will be to do more deep, reflective thinking and more relationship-oriented work. All of that lends itself to being more of an independent free agent. So I think even the technology trends will keep nudging us in, in that direction. That's one part of it. The other part of it, and this is where it's a bit in conflict, and we talk about this in Savvy quite a bit, is we as human beings, we have a strong desire to belong. We're social beings. So just as there may be a shift to more and more free agency, our desire to be part of something bigger, part of a bigger story, to come together and self-organize in certain ways to create economic and productive output might serve as a counterbalancing force. So that's what I see in terms of the macro picture. For me personally, look, for me, the most important thing for me to do over the last eight, nine months 
was to write this book. I'm now getting the message out about it. Doesn't mean I'll always be a free agent. Who knows? I, I feel lucky to be in a position in my life where I don't have to think too far ahead for the first time. So it's an exciting period. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, you know, this has been a pleasure. I always leave with a, a page full of notes after a conversation with you. So thank you for sharing your thoughts and your, your wisdom with the audience today. Thank you so much for having me on, Dave. Uh, we'll talk real soon. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.